Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, join me, Rob McConnell, as together we'll investigate the world of the paranormal and the science of parapsychology here on the Exxon Radio TV show on XZBN and the Exxon TV channel on Simul TV. Since 1990, the Exxon Radio TV show has been the place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. Together, we'll investigate UFOs, aliens, ghosts, Bigfoot, psychic phenomena, lake monsters, conspiracy theories, government cover-ups, the truth embargo, alien abductions, ESP, haunted locations from around the world, and so much more. With over 28 years of broadcasting and more than 4,500 individual guests, The X-Zone is truly a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality, as evidenced by the credibility, integrity, and professionalism of the guests that we bring to our international audience. If you have seen a UFO, had a close encounter, seen a ghost, Bigfoot, lake monster, or a story that you would like to share or have investigated, contact me, Rob McConnell by sending me your email to xzone at xzoneradiotv.com or you can call toll-free 1-800-610-7035, extension 143, and on Skype, Exxon Radio TV. For more information on the Exxon Radio TV show with yours truly, Rob McConnell, visit www.exzoneradiotv.com or www.xzonetvchannel.com or simultv.com and xzbn.net. Until next we meet here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Always remember Exxon Nation. Keep your eyes to the sky and your heart in the light. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. Kevin is a retired United States Army Lieutenant Colonel who has studied UFOs for more than 50 years. His military training has provided him with unique insight into military operations and UFO research. Kevin has investigated many of the most mysterious cases and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries and been interviewed on hundreds of radio and television programs about UFOs. Considered to be one of the leading experts on the Roswell UFO crash, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs including Roswell in the 21st Century and Encounter in the Desert, a re-examination of the Socorro UFO landing. Now here's the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. Mm-hmm.
welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. I'm going to start the program a little differently than today, than I normally do, I should say. I am going to make a political statement. Now, normally, when I get uh, political messages on comments on my blog or something like that, I delete them immediately because I don't want to get involved in the nonsense that goes on with that. Uh, if you read any of the comments that people make uh, from their Twitter accounts or whatever, when it gets into the political arena, it degenerates into some kind of name calling and the same sort of nonsense and not well thought up postings. But what I wanted to say is for those of us who live in Iowa or New Hampshire or South Carolina, which are the states that begin the election process, I guess, the, the whole campaign, we have been inundated with campaign commercials, just inundated for more than a year, this has been going on. I'm thinking about announcing my candidacy for the president uh, of the United States in 2024 so I can start the campaign really, really early instead of like years in advance. We get political ad, political ad, political ad, programming, political ad, political ad, programming. It's just one after another. And they say things that are simply untrue. They say things that are misleading, misrepresenting the situations. And it just goes on and on and on. The only light at the end of the tunnel is that the Iowa caucuses are coming up in a couple of weeks and the number of ads will fade for a period of time. But then we'll get right back into it as the campaign heats up. And then I think once the new president is elected or the president is reelected, they'll start all over with the campaign. I mean, four years in advance. Anyway, that's my political statement. I just wanted to make it. And any of the comments made to me on my blog about the political statement or comments will probably be deleted without uh, further mention. But this kind of leads me into the next point, which is um, the cancel culture, where if I disagree with you, I now go out of my way to get you canceled from whatever you're doing. In ufology, it's you have to embrace everything. You have to embrace MJ-12. You have to embrace alien abduction. You have to embrace crop circles, animal mutilation, uh, the Roswell crash, all these subsets of ufology you have to embrace. If you say anything that suggests you might not accept one of these arenas, then there are those people who will attack you. They won't want to discuss with you why you hold those points of view. They merely want to attack you. Best best example I have of this, and I hesitate to mention it because I know it's going to open up me to more criticism, but uh, a couple of years ago, um, the Billy Meyer stuff came up. Uh, MUFON was holding their symposium and they were inviting guests to talk about their experiences that I thought were a little bit untrue, made up, invented, fiction. And I just suggested that if they're going to do that, because the attitude was, well, we want the membership to hear these people talk and let them decide for themselves what they want to believe. They said, well, why don't you invite Billy Meyer? You know, let them believe what you want about that. And uh, for a moment, I was the darling of the Billy Meyer cult. But then in the comments, as we were going through the comments, I made what I thought was a fairly benign and off the uh, cuff statement about, uh, you know, I don't find... The Billy Meyer uh, evidence persuasive. I don't. I don't believe. I don't believe in the Billy Meyer case. Well, this just outraged the Billy Meyer people. How could I say that? I've defamed Billy Meyer. 
my opinion is I do not believe the story. I don't find the evidence sufficient. Why should that outrage you? What do you have to change my mind? But it wasn't that way. It was merely an attack on my reputation, on me. I, I was called a coward. And, and, and that'll lead us into in the next segment at some point here, and it, which, which is a nice segue. But it's that sort of thing. I, I found myself on the outs of any number of places because of the radical points of view I've held. Aztec New Mexico crash started by two con men. I don't find the evidence persuasive. They haven't produced anything of an independent nature that suggests this crash took place in 1948. And in fact, some of the people who were living in Aztec, New Mexico in 1948 said it never happened. We had one of the guys on the show, Marty Shriver, who uh, talked about that. I think he was a high school student in 1948 and talked about that never happened. I wanted to get um, the Ramses on the show to talk to me about that. And we talked to them and we talked to Shriver and get sign of a dialogue going on. But Ramsey didn't want to uh, participate. I don't know why. I think it would be a wonderful forum for him to point out what he thinks is the good evidence for the Aztec crash. Uh, cattle mutilations are the same way. I looked into those at the uh, request of Jim Lorenzen of APRO back in the mid-1970s, and I hate to mention that, but uh, because it, it gives you an idea of my age. But Lorenzen called me one night, and he was talking about these cattle mutilations, and there was some stuff going on in Minnesota, me living in Iowa, not that far away, and wanted to know if I would take a look at it, and I said, certainly, be glad to. Um, but before we went, I say we, I was working with Bob Cornett, Robert Charles Cornett, who was on this program not that long ago. Uh, we had learned some more stuff about what was going on in, in Minnesota, and, and it was suggested that it was not necessarily alien in nature, but more related to satanic cults and um, some other nefarious things. So, so we went fairly well armed into Minnesota, uh, just because that's the way we were, and we were young at the time. Met up with a guy there whose radio name was Mike Douglas. That was his on-the-air persona. He helped us out a lot. When we finished that investigation, we were there for quite a while, it became clear that the Minnesota end of this sort of thing had nothing to do with aliens, that the uh, various events, the various incidents, were probably more terrestrially based. In one case, for example, uh, somebody had seen a whole bunch of circles melted in the snow uh, and thought they were UFO landing sites. Turned out what they had been were silage piles. The farmer had moved his silos around and there was silage there and it was generating heat as it de decomposed and that melted the slow snow in these, these perfect circles. Another one said, well, there was these holes in ice where the, the UFOs had landed and there was cattle around there and all that sort of thing, we found out that the farmer had actually chopped the holes in the ice so that he could get water to his animals. Um, you know, it was that sort of thing. We talked to the sheriff's deputies, we talked to an awful lot of people. And when we came away, we realized that a lot, lot of this was um, just not related to alien visitation or alien cattle mutilations. Uh, one of the best ones, I, I went to Wisconsin, and I always remember the, the uh, vet's name I talked to is Jefferson Davis. He's living in Wisconsin, Jefferson Davis, good southern name there. And he had a, a cattle mutilation that he was talking about, and he told me, he said, well, the farmer's cow had always been sickly, and that uh, if it died from natural causes, from being sick, then there was no insurance money involved. If, on the other hand, the cow had been mutilated by alien visitors or had killed and been mutilated, regardless what the agency was, and the, 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 the rancher got uh, the insurance money. So the farmer 
the rancher had mutilated the cow for the insurance money. You know, it solved, solved the case. That was what I ran into. Uh, I got a email from a guy who wanted to say, well, how do you explain the lack of copper in the bodies of the animals? Uh, you know, everybody's got copper in their blood and that sort of thing. And there was a, a lack of copper in the mutilated cow's blood. I thought, well, there's a darn good question. Let's find out. So in the world of the Internet, I just typed lack of or copper deficiency in cattle and learned way more than I wanted to about that, including journals, journal articles and that sort of thing, and found out that it's not uncommon for cows to have a copper deficiency. In some areas, the, 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 the ranchers actually have to provide uh, artificial uh, copper for them to, to ingest. Otherwise, um, they, become, they become sick. So the lack of cop copper didn't really lead to an alien, alien visitation and that sort of thing. But the point simply is, if you take some of these radical positions of demanding evidence, you're labeled as a debunker, you know, and uh, I don't think it's fair. I, one of the reviews of one of my books, the, the idea obviously didn't read it, says, don't read this book, Kevin Randall's a debunker. What the heck kind of a review is that? Um, he may not like my point of view, but let's look at the evidence and decide whether the evidence goes in that direction. If I am wrong... Let me know. I periodically revisit these things like cattle mutilations and alien abduction and all of that sort of thing to see what the latest information is and see if something has changed and something is different that would suggest that maybe I should alter my opinion based on better evidence and better gathering of uh, testimony and that sort of thing. But too often, that's not exactly what happened. I'm going to have to break away here for a short break. When I come back by myself, I might add, uh, I'm going to delve a little bit into my military background because a number of people have asked me about that. And um, I think there's some confusion because I sort of <laughs> meandered around various service components uh, for 40 years. And that explains how I ended up in doing the things I did. So I thought I would explain a little bit about that. Also talk about maybe the dark side of Stan Friedman and something that's going on in the deep state that relates to UFOs. The blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. As always, I will have additional information on the blog uh, about this particular episode and, and add some uh, links to places you can look uh, for additional information about what I'm saying. Get it from a different point of view, a different perspective, if you will. I will be back right after this and I'll talk about some of my military service. So stick around. Patty Conklin grew up in Brooktondale, New York with a unique ability. Unlike others, she could see how the vibration of words and emotions affected the physical body. She discovered how to release stored emotion and facilitate healing. This began today's Conklin method of cellular cleansing. The private practice grew with tremendous results, as did her reputation. More and more people sought her out, bringing her into the home for healing. She soon realized she could even teach this to others, and they could shift perception and thus prevent illness from occurring. Patty Conklin quickly became a frequent keynote speaker, and she developed a curriculum for teaching the Conklin method of cellular cleansing. For more information, visit pattyconklin.com, P-A-T-T-I, 
C-O-N-K-L-I-N, pattyconklin.com, or call 404-474-0086. That's 404-474-0086. Evolution is dedicated to the well-being of the planet and animals, as well as the evolution of humankind. One major factor threatening all three is increasing toxicity. Heavy metals and other environmental toxins are poisoning our bodies, deteriorating our brains, blocking our spiritual connection, and shortening our lives. Yet these poisons are extremely difficult to remove. I'm Gwilda Wiecka, and I recently became aware of a product created from the marriage of nature and nanotechnology called Vitality. Is formulated from zoolite, whose crystalline structure binds toxins, gently carrying them out of the body. The light is only as clear as the window through which it shines. Clear your body, shine your light into the world. Visit VitalityHappens.com for a 20% discount. Enter code PATHHOME. Dr. Carl O'Helvey, founder, president of a new cancer foundation focusing on evidence-based physical, mental, and spiritual interventions, including natural cancer cures, prayer, meditation, affirmations, nutrition, and other related holistic cancer prevention and cure modalities. These are used in cancer education, research, and financing care. I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com. By myself, as I said, I'm I'm doing some wrap-ups from uh, last year and some looks at what we'll be doing in the future here on a different perspective. Uh, I was going to do this uh, in December, but uh, John Burroughs kind of uh, got in the way of that after Charles Hall had been on the program, and I wanted to get him on to kind of talk about uh, his attitudes toward the Rendlesham Forest case, because I thought that was more important than me rambling on. When I went away by myself... Um, I mentioned I was going to talk a little bit about my military career because the questions have come up. I did a book, Reflections of a UFO Investigator. In that book, I kind of uh, did a chronology of my life from high school to the point of that book ending. Uh, So you got some of the the military stuff. For example, while I was uh, in flight school, a guy named Carol Wayne Watts claimed to have contacted, been contacted, by aliens, and uh, his story was big news. And since uh, he lived in Texas and I was at Fort Walters, Texas, I took a three-day pass, managed to get a three-day pass, and went to interview him about his uh, experience. And that was in the book, and so it all kind of related that way. But what I thought I'd point out is here, when I graduated high school, and I won't say when, although it'll become probably clear at some point, about four weeks after I was out of high school, I found myself in the U.S. Army. I had volunteered. 
we didn't have the money for me to go to college. The plan had always been I would go to college. The plan was I would get the GI Bill by serving in the United States Army, and then I could afford to go to college, which kind of worked out. So I went, uh, I went to the Army, did my basic training at Fort, um, Fort Polk, Louisiana, which, by the way, was not a fun place to be, and it's not just because of the basic training. Then went to Fort Walters, Texas for flight school. So I became an Army helicopter pilot. I eventually went to Fort, uh, Fort Rucker, Alabama. We did advanced training. And uh, found myself in Vietnam three or four weeks after uh, graduating from flight school and being appointed a ward officer. Back at that time, we were appointed. Uh, now they commission them after you've served out your uh, ward officer. You become a commissioned ward officer after a year or 18 months or whatever. But we were just ward officers. What was interesting about this is that uh, I had been on the swim team, and a friend friend of mine, Gary Gogger, not Gary Gogger, Gary Gray, and I, while riding to the meets on the school bus, would sit in the back. And the program on the uh, television at the time was twelve o'clock high, and it was always these guys flying B seventeens into combat, and they're bouncing around in the flak and the buffeting of the uh, winds of loft and everything. And so we would pretend like we were flying B-17s. 18 months later, I'm in Vietnam flying helicopters, which is kind of interesting. I was 19 years old. Uh, like everybody else who arrived in Vietnam at that time, uh, we did about, you had to have about 300 hours of in-country flight time before you could transition into aircraft commander. So you're, you spend uh, two months, three months in Vietnam learning to fly in combat environment, and then you uh, are turned over as an aircraft, turned, turned loose as an aircraft commander. And it's always a strange thing because as a ward officer, you're like the lowest ranking officer in the United States Army. Second lieutenants outrank you. But in aviation units, you would find the aircraft commander would sometimes be a ward officer and the co-pilot would be a captain. And the Captain Copilot had to listen to you because you were the aircraft commander, no matter how young you happened to be or how low ranking you were, because you had the experience in the combat environment. So that's one of the things that, that went on. Now, what I, uh, what, what these people want to know is what, what happened in Vietnam? What was going on in Vietnam? And the one story that, that kind of uh, explains this is, is, like I said, we would been had been pretending that we were flying combat missions on the way to swim meets. Now I'm flying combat missions. And one morning as we're going into the LZ, we have a full load of troops behind us. You know, it's a flight of uh, nine air aircraft. And as we're going in, just as we're about to touch down, there's this huge explosion underneath the nose of my aircraft. Breaks out the chin bubbles, the clear spaces underneath the chin of the Huey, broke the pedals on the co-pilot side. Thank God I was flying the aircraft broke some of the instruments, broke out the uh, windshields. Ironically, didn't do anything to the rotor blades. It should have should have damaged the rotor blades, but it didn't. So I did a, what was called a hovering auto rotation. I hear somebody calling. I know where the RPGs are coming from. I'm thinking if he was that close with the R first RPG, I don't want to hang around for the second. Um, I look at the engine, engine instruments. They're in the green. The rotor's in the green. Everything's good. 
I see the uh, aircraft from behind us pulling up on each side on the flanks. The door gunner, one of, one of them, and the uh, crew chief of the other jump out to help us. I pick the aircraft up to a hover. We're still flyable. And we're on the go. Uh, trailer said, you know, your lead, you're down, uh, take off. And everybody's taking off. And I'm going with them. I'm not hanging around. I'm about to join the flight. And I realize that the uh, guys in the PZ, the soldiers in the PZ, aren't going to want to get on this aircraft because we're badly damaged. So I break off, told them I'm going to Coochie because of combat damage. And here's where the here's where the story comes interest. So I'm going into Coochie, which is the airfield we had been flying out of. It was the closest airfield, actually. And I called the tower and I told them, I think it was a Crusader 686. I think that was the aircraft number. And I said, extensive combat damage coming, you know, need a straight in approach. And the guy says, are you declaring an emergency? And I'm thinking, didn't I just say that? Yes, we have an emergency. I need to get this aircraft on the ground as quickly as possible. But the point is, you know, a few months before, I'm pretending it, now I'm living it. So we get down, not a problem, hover over to the uh, maintenance area. I think it was the three-quarter CAV, uh, third of the fourth uh, cavalry regiment. There was another aviation unit. Touchdown, and up rolls this colonel in a jeep. And he gets out, and he's there with his, uh, well, it was not his A, but a, a lieutenant, and he tells the lieutenant, crawl up in the aircraft and dang your feet out the chin bubble so he can take pictures. And I now have a life-size picture of this guy going home and bragging about him being involved in that uh, event. Uh, doesn't say a word to us. The crew gets in his Jeep and takes off. Well, the, the crew and I, uh, we go back, we go up to the 269th Combat Aviation Battalion, which was our parent unit. We're having lunch in the mess hall, the and I'm not sure who all was with me. I don't know whether the enlisted soldiers were with me or not, because there was there was in the time where you had different areas for the enlisted and the NCOs and the officers. I, so I don't know who all was with me. But this captain comes up to me and he says, Colonel wanted me to talk to you. And I said, OK. He says, uh, we noticed your boots weren't properly shined. I'm thinking I've just blown up a helicopter. I'm lucky that I'm not wounded or killed. I'm lucky that my crew is okay and the soldiers that we were carrying are okay, that we didn't roll the aircraft up into a little ball and burst into flames. And he's worried about my the shine on my boots. Did it ever occur to him that maybe the explosion removed part of the shine or something like that? That was the only comment made to me by the battalion commander. And he didn't even have the guts to say it himself. He sent some captain to do it. Your boots aren't properly shined. That'll give you some idea of what was going on there. Um, but, uh, you know, it was kind of interesting thinking about it now after so many years is I'm pretending to be a combat pilot. Now I'm coming in with extensive combat damage into uh, into Coochie. But that was the that was the kind of things we did on a daily basis. I flew these missions. We took fire periodically, uh, sometimes heavy, sometimes not. Um, you know, and I got a dozen other stories like that, but we'll move on. So after, after serving in the active duty army as a pilot, got discharged, went to college, the uh, Air Force ROTC made a big deal about how you come join ROTC and we can, uh, we'll get you a jet to fly. At that time, because I'd only been a ward officer, I was eligible to take ROTC. So I did. So that was how I ended up in the Air Force taking ROTC because they promised me a jet to fly. They reneged on the deal. 
So I took what was called the pallets option, which you served a period of time on active duty, a short period of time. You took your commission, served the time, and then you were released and had no further obligations to the Air Force. Air Force wouldn't give me a scholarship, by the way, because uh, I would be slightly too old at the time of graduation. Didn't care that I was a combat veteran. Had flown aircraft in Vietnam. Nope, didn't care. Guys in the ROTC programs, grade point average was so low, they couldn't graduate. But I was refused a scholarship. Anyway, that was how I ended up in the Air Force, did some time on active duty, was asked by the commander of the um, wing that I'd been assigned to for my active duty if I wanted to come over on the reserve side of the house. I said, sure. So that was how I ended up in the Air Force Reserve, served there a number of years, and uh, finally got out because of uh, uh, the politics, I think, of a thing. Uh, after 9-11... I worked very hard to get into the Iowa National Guard, um, which was I was successful at doing. Uh, ended up in Iraq for a year uh, because of that. So that was uh, so that was how my transition from the active duty Army to the Air Force uh, ROTC to the Air Force to the Air Force Reserve and back into the Iowa National Guard. So I had my my career was scattered over all of these various military activities, I guess. Anyway, um, that's that's a war story. That's how my military career went. Shows you how I got to the point where I am today. When we come back, or I said when I come back, I'm going to talk a little bit about Stan Friedman's um, dark side and some of the things that went on, I guess, behind the scenes. And I didn't think it was appropriate right after he died to bring this up and probably be considered whining, but I'm gonna go into it anyway to give an idea that some of the stuff that went on that probably important for us to know. So I'll be back right after this, but I'll mention one more time, take a look at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Take a look at uh, Roswell in the 21st century about what's latest there and uh, Encounter in the Desert about the Zamora sighting and I will return in just a few moments. audience. If you have seen a UFO, had a close encounter, seen a ghost, Bigfoot, lake monster, or a story that you would like to share or have investigated, contact me, Rob McConnell, by sending me your email to xzone at xzoneradiotv.com, or you can call toll-free 1-800-610-7035, extension 143, and on Skype, Exxon Radio TV. For more information on the Exxon Radio TV show with yours truly, Rob McConnell, visit www.exxoneradiotv.com or www.exxonetvchannel.com or simultv.com and xzbn.net. Until next we meet here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, always remember Exxon Nation. Keep your eyes to the sky and your heart in the light. Join Patty Conklin and Healing Within Radio each week. More than entertainment, Healing Within offers educational, useful tools for everyday life. Listen for help overcoming fear, anxiety, and depression. Patty knows about eliminating cancer, MS, dementia, Parkinson's, 
and a host of illnesses that we face every day. Life can be good. Life is good. All you need are simple tools to start changing your life. Start right now by visiting pattyconklin.com. P-A-T-T-I-C-O-N-K-L-I-N. No matter where you are in the world, you can work with Patty through Skype, phone, or in person, visiting one of her retreats in Georgia. Visit pattyconklin.com today or call our offices at 404-474-0086. That's pattyconklin.com or call 404-474-0086. Coming soon to the Exxon Broadcast Network is a different perspective with me, Kevin Randall, as your host. We'll be taking a close look at what is happening in the world of UFOs today with side trips into the paranormal. Guests will range from those who are household names to those who have a different perspective on a variety of topics. No topic will be taboo, but there will be tough questions asked as we all search for the truth about UFOs, the paranormal, and those things that excite us. Sometimes we'll agree with a guest and sometimes we won't, but we'll try to keep the program topical. For those of you who would like to read, be sure to visit www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and remember to listen to the other fine programs on the X-Zone Broadcast Network at www.xzbn.net. I have returned from the latest uh, break, I guess. Uh, When I checked out for a few moments here, I said we'll talk a little bit about Stan Friedman's dark side. And as I said, I'm a little bit leery about doing this because I know that it can blow back on me somewhat. But I think there's some things that need to be said. And I didn't think it was appropriate right after he died. I'd been asked by a number of people to um, comment on that. And I did an obituary on my blog that I thought was fairly neutral, pointed out that we had mostly a cordial relationship, but there were things that went on and things that Friedman did that just uh, weren't exactly, shall we say, up to snuff. I almost used another term, and I think that would have probably got me in trouble with some protected group, so I I refrain from doing that. Um, I first met Stan Friedman, I think, in 19... 1990. I knew who he was. I mean, we had been, and I say we, uh, had been writing articles for UFO magazines and whatnot. I stumbled across his name here and there in, in writings. He he uh, usually paired up with somebody else. I was doing the stuff by myself. Um, he and I were not writing together. So I knew who he was. The, the vision I have, the memory I have, is we met in a parking lot in a rest area in Illinois. It may be we were in a parking lot at a restaurant. Stan had been doing a lecture in the area, and Don Schmidt and I were there um, on part of the Roswell investigation, and we, we coordinated a meeting. And it, for some reason, I have a, an idea. It's a, a, like an interstate rest area. Anyhow, it was a parking lot. We were outside talking about it. And Stan knew that we had uh, sold a book, a UFO Crash at Roswell. He wanted to... Uh, to join us in that project, he wanted his name to be on the book, he would be in the third place, and we would give him a quarter of the money. I thought that was a kind of a cheeky thing to do. I was disinclined to uh, agree to that because he had promised to help us and never did. 
The information we gathered, we gathered on our own. Best example of this I can think of is Bill Rickett, who was the um, NCOIC, which is the sergeant in charge of the counterintelligence office at Roswell in 1947, working under Sheridan Cabot, who was the OIC officer in charge. Stan had told us Rickett is dead. Don found a phone number, um, thought it was for the widow. So he calls up Mary, Mary Rickett, and he's talking to her and he's asking him que her questions about what Bill had done, what Bill had seen, what Bill knew. And she says to him, surprisingly, oh, Bill's sitting right here, you want to talk to him? So of course we talked to him and I got some very good information from him and seemed to be a very nice fellow, very sincere fellow, talking about his experiences in Roswell in 1947. But that was the sort of thing that uh, Stan did all the time. It was always a one-way street. We would provide him with information and cues, and he would uh, not. Another good example is uh, Gerald Anderson, who turned out to be a major, I'll say it, liar. Let him sue me. What the heck? Major liar on the whole UFO thing, claimed that he'd been there on the plains of St. Augustine and seen the crash of the, uh, the Bonnie Barnett sighting end of it. The thing was, um, I had found, well, actually, I should say Anderson had found us. Uh, we had done the program Unsolved Mysteries. And at the end of the program, they say, if you have any comments or information about this segment, write to or call our call center. Anderson called in and they sent the information to me. And I called Anderson up. We had a nice chat for about 50 minutes. And... Um, let it go. Let it go at that. I immediately wrote Stan and told him about this guy, Gerald Anderson. And Stan called Anderson. And the next thing you know, Anderson won't talk to me. No more wondering why. Uh, Stan had told him that uh, I was a former intelligence officer, which of course was true, that um, I wasn't to be trusted and that I wrote fiction. So I had to be careful. So Anderson cut off all communication with me, then produced a phone bill showing that his call to me was only 26 minutes. Uh, because it was a call to my, my number, I was able to get the telephone records, which I probably wouldn't be able to do in today's environment. Showed the call was, I think, 54 minutes. So we, we had Landerson not only lying about uh, things, but he um, forged documents as well. Anyhow, Stan was a big proponent of the Gerald Anderson stuff. Uh, what really was kind of funny is we were at a meeting in Chicago, Stan Friedman, Don Berliner, uh, Tim, Tim, um, Don Schmidt, um, Tom Carey. I, I want to say Tim Carey. I, I served in Iraq with Tim Carey, uh, Tom Carey, and uh, some other people from the Fund for UFO Research and the Center for UFO Studies. And we wanted, we had given Stan he had requested a bunch of stuff from us. We'd given it to him. He, we'd requested stuff from him, and he just really didn't do it, which was part of the part of the uh, protocol for the meeting. You had to swap swap the information, sort of a discovery process, I guess. So we're sitting there and we're talking about that, and we're we're, we're astonished that Stan had not recorded the phone call, the first phone call with um, Anderson. He says, "No, I just didn't record it." Don Berliner, and as Mike Sword said, "Bless his heart." reached into this paper bag that he carried as his briefcase, I guess, and says, oh, sure you did, Stan. Here's the tape. And so we got to listen to the tape. The first 10 or 15 minutes is cut off. 
by Stan narrating over Anderson, which strikes us as extremely odd. But um, you hear the things that Stan was saying about me and to not to talk to me. Don't talk to Kevin Randall. Talk to me. You know, he's a, I guess, a stooge of the Air Force, that sort of thing. Uh, an allegation that's slung all the time. Didn't think that was really the right thing to do. It all it all came out in the wash, though, when um, we were able to discover that Stan, uh, that, that um, Anderson had forged his phone bill and uh, had identified the archaeologist as, turned out to be his high school anthropology teacher, uh, who was not available on the plains of San Augustine in July of 1947. So that was one thing. The other thing that got me was I was doing a presentation in Cincinnati, Ohio. On the morning of the presentation, the host told me they'd gotten a call from Stan and they wanted, he wanted to know why they'd booked me for this presentation rather than him. And they said, he said, didn't you want a scientist? And I said, well, you should have asked him, yeah, do you know one? But, uh, you know, it was something set up. And I, I've run into this before in uh, at science fiction conventions. If you write a science fiction book, there are science fiction writers who think you've taken money out of their pocket. Couldn't possibly write all the books. Stan could not possibly do all the presentations about UFOs um, by himself. There had to be other people involved uh, in in doing these presentations. He just he just couldn't physically do it. But he felt it was taking stuff out of his pocket. Uh, Robert Hastings, who was also on the uh, lecture circuit, wrote the book um, UFOs and Nukes or Nukes and UFOs about. Uh, incursions in the um, uh, weapons facilities on Air Force bases and that sort of thing, actually threatened to sue, sue Stan because he had a letter from one of the colleges that had booked him to uh, give a presentation and a letter from Stan, or I guess a phone call from Stan saying that they should cancel Robert and book him instead. Um, I have that documentation. I also have a documentation from Jim Mosley, and he had done the same thing to Jim Mosley. Mosley told me, though, that he didn't really care because he was getting tired of the lecture circuit and he was uh, going to stop doing it anyway. So uh, that that uh, didn't really bother him. But the point is, I mean, here are three of us who have had the same experience of Stan Friedman trying to, I guess, take our bookings away from us. I didn't really care that much either because I just wasn't a fan of doing those sorts of presentations. But... You know, if somebody asked me, I would be had to do it. But the big thing was after we had told Stan that you know we're gonna we're gonna do the book on our own. Publishers don't like three names on a book cover. They really aren't really happy about two names, but they'll do it. But three names, they didn't really want to do it. Um, Stan wrote to the publisher, accused us of stealing other researchers' information, would use it without credit or attribution. Uh, flights of fancy, fictionalizing the accounts, that sort of thing. Ironically, that's what Stan did with his book. If you go through Crash at Corona, his book on it, you can find interviews that Don Schmidt and I, I had conducted without a word providing attribution or credit for it. Uh, one of them is with Bill Brazel, the son of the son of Mac Brazel, for example. So, uh, you know, that that was kind of annoying that he did that sort of thing. Um, Dick Hall became really annoyed at both Stan and me about this fight and asked for evidence. So I sent him the documentation that I had, not only the letters from my editor, but the letters from Stan Friedman uh, to the publisher, which the publisher had sent me and that sort of thing, showing that what, what he had done there. 
And then I spent about 24 hours on the phone, not all at once, you mind you, over several days, talking to the lawyers at the publisher. And then finally, one of the lawyers asked a pertinent question. He said, by the way, did you record these phone call, uh, these, these interviews? And I said, yes. And the lawyer's attitude was, thank you, goodbye. Because we could prove that we had gathered the information ourselves. We had not taken it from somebody else and used it without credit or attribution. Well, Stan complained about the book when it came out because in the acknowledgement section, um, we didn't give him as many lines as we'd given to Robert Hastings. He thought that was just really terrible. And we'd, for, we'd left out few for which would provide some, some funding for us. So when I had an opportunity to update the book, I changed the um, acknowledgements. I took out Stan's name, put in fund for UFO research because they fit right close together and I could do it easily. Well, that way you want to complain about the uh, acknowledgement we gave you, we'll just take it out. And that was the end of it. I have a thick file with much of this stuff on it. He did a uh, article in the MUFON Journal, 38 False Claims by Kevin Randall and Don Schmidt, basically made up. Don't know why they published it, but they did. Um, I'm not going to bother with putting this stuff on the blog. Anyway, that's kind of the dark side of Stan Friedman. I didn't get as much said there as I wanted, but uh, the time is catching up on me. I will be back right after this with uh, talking about the deep state, I guess. So please stick around. If you are looking for a safe, zero-calorie, natural option to the harmful artificial sweeteners on the market today, Just Like Sugar is what you're looking for. Just Like Sugar is a wonderful natural alternative for those health-conscious people who choose a calorie-restricted diet with a great, pure, sweet flavor that tastes just like sugar. Just Like Sugar is a great natural option for people suffering from diabetes and may be useful in restricted diet programs where standard sugars are not allowed and does not cause a laxative effect of some other sweeteners. Just Like Sugar comprises a perfect blend of chicory root fiber, natural calcium, natural vitamin C, and Just Like Sugar's sweetness comes from the natural flavors from the peel of the orange. Just Like Sugar is a natural alternative to harmful artificial sweeteners and will change the way that you believe all natural sweetener products taste. Just Like Sugar is available at your local Whole Foods markets, Wild Oats markets, Henry's, Sun Harvest, and many other fine natural food stores in the U.S., Canada, and worldwide. They are here, and they've been here for thousands of years, making their presence known in the shadows. They might be seen by a lonely motorist on a deserted road late at night, or by a frightened and confused husband in the bedroom he is sharing with his wife. But who are they? What do they want? Why are they here? Perhaps most concerning, has the government been aware of their presence all along? The new book by Ellie Marzulli, UFO Disclosure, The 70-Year Cover-Up Exposed, delves into the world of UFOs. Can full disclosure be soon? Order now and receive a free hour and 37-minute DVD on the UFO phenomenon, UFOs Are Real. Get both the book and the DVD, a $40 value, for only $19.99. To order your book and DVD today, go to lamarzuli.net. That's L-A-M-A-R-Z-U-L-L-I dot net. You have heard of the X-Zone? Now watch it on Simo TV, plus 500 video games, live TV channels, free video on demand, worldwide, and more. Does this sound like tomorrow's television? 
Well, it is, but you can have it today, right now. It is Simul TV. Simul TV offers what the others only wish they could provide. 15 exclusive channels like X-Zone, Sci-Fi, and Horror. We are worldwide. No other provider offers that. 500 built-in video games. No need to have an extra expensive system. We have them included. Free video on demand. Live streaming events from around the world. Interactive online network and much more. Tomorrow's TV today. Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at simultv.com. Do it today. Memorable dynamic presentations are a not so secret weapon in the business world. Do you have a powerful message that must be shared, but you haven't found a way to deliver that message? Do you want to be known as a top public speaker who gets amazing results? Are you ready to create and deliver your powerful message? Thomas Hyde can help you create and deliver your speech to get the results you desire. Visit iconquality.com. Did you expect your business to flourish, but instead it plateaued or didn't get off the ground yet? Would you like to achieve massive goals and discover new sources of income within your business? When you're ready to experience that type of success with fast results, Cindy Hendricks is the business coach for you. Her work with entrepreneurs and business owners has been life-changing. To get you and your business where you want to be, go to imaginemoresuccess.com. Has the fear of public speaking stalled your business or personal life? What would you give to develop and maintain supreme confidence? Have an invaluable private program to always perform at your best. Imagine how you would feel. You can have all that and so much more today with Thomas Hyde's life-changing course called Number One Fear Unleashed. Visit NumberOneFear.com and be liberated from your fear of public speaking. I am here now with the final segment. Little little uh, bit of unfinished business, however. When I was telling the war stories, I should have mentioned that those of you who would like to know more about this or see if I'm actually telling the truth, you can go to the 187th AHC, that's 187th Assault Helicopter Company, and scroll down, I think it's uh, I think it's May 16th when I hit the landmine. So you can take a look at that on, in 1969. Uh, I put a link to the uh, unit when I uh, do the blog posting. And uh, one thing I want to say about um, the Stan Friedman thing is to, I guess, bolster the Gerald Anderson story when he was using the information that we had provided from the uh, interview with Bill Brazel, he inserted a word into the, into the conversation as if it was an important word, that there had been a black sergeant with Anderson who had visited Bill Brazel. Um, that's simply untrue. There was no black sergeant. They were all Caucasians. They had come from the 509th Bomb Group. Uh, Cal Corp had said at one time there were no black sergeants in the 509th Bomb Group. There were, in fact, 24, according to the yearbook. And I say oh, at least 24, I should say, because... Uh, Walter Hott, who put it together, told me that they missed 10 to 20 percent. So there could have been five additional black sergeants in the 509 bomb group. But that's neither here nor there. What I wanted to talk about in this last segment is a little bit about the deep state. And I think that's 
something that has come up frequently in the last oh, several months when talking about uh, politics in the United States. And in this case, the deep state, I think, refers, or what I'm referring to specifically is their uh, manipulation of the UFO data. And I'm, I'm thinking of specific things that were manipulated. For example, in 1953, there was a CIA-sponsored panel called the Robertson Panel, which looked at the data from the UFO files of the Project Blue Book and determined that there was really nothing going on there. It wasn't important. We should debunk the whole thing and end the mystery. I think that was influence of somewhat at a higher level, someone who believed that providing the information about uh, UFOs might be damaging to the psyche of the of the people, might be something that in, could impair national security. Specifically, what they referred to was that if the Soviets wanted to attack, they could flood the communication systems with UFO reports and kind of mask their uh, attack on the United States. A preposterous idea, but that was something to the Robertson panel proposed. Uh, the point is there was some kind of manipulation going on above Project Blue Book and probably some of the people who participated in the Robertson panel as well, some kind of manipulation going on, which is suggestive of a dark state, suggestive of people who are bureaucrats, people who are not beholden to an administration, but people who, as bureaucrats, see their jobs continue from administration to administration to administration. So they gain a lot of power. Best example of that would be J. Edgar Hoover, who uh, lasted quite a long time as the director of the FBI because of his manipulation of the data and the da data that he uh, was gathering. But while I was doing research in the dark state, I was looking for what Ronald Reagan may have said or done about UFOs, knowing that George W. H. W. Bush, his vice president, had been the director of central intelligence, which may have been something of a participant in the dark state, and Bush could, of course, divert any clearances or queries that, that President Reagan had. I came across a briefing that was supposedly held by, or held in June of 1981, uh, I think at Camp David, and it involved, it mentioned the higher levels of the Reagan administration, but it also mentioned somebody called the caretaker who was the briefer, but we never have the identity of who that is, which I find worrisome. But remember, this is June in 1981, so I was reading through this, and it's actually a fascinating read. I'll get a link up to it in my blog if you want to read the entire briefing. But there are problems with it. Uh, the one that uh, the first red flag I came to, of course, was we don't have an identif identifier of who the caretaker is. He was the one that was supposedly in contact with the alien who was retrieved during the Roswell crash. And... Uh, was interviewed by Air Force officers for a period of five years before the, the alien died. Uh, but they mentioned MJ-12. Now, if we believe MJ-12, and this document was from 1981, well, obviously the Eisenhower briefing, which supposedly took place in 1952, could have been some of the information they used to gather. But I, I believe, and I think the large majority of the UFO community now believes that MJ-12 is probably... Not true. Uh, we talked to Robert Wood, not Robert Wood, I'm sorry, Ryan Wood not too long ago about MJ-12, and I think uh, Tom Whitmore, who's going to be on this program next week, 
We'll talk about uh, we'll talk about MJ12 as well. But in reading through this, it's it's kind of a fascinating study of, of everything going on. Talks about where they come from, the aliens come from, and of course it's Zeta One, Zeta Two Reticuli, which is the double star system, which was identified by Marjorie Fish based on the Betty Hill star map. Marjorie Fish created these three-dimensional models and of, of the stars in the our galactic area and viewed it from different angles until she came to a pattern that sort of matched the Betty Hill star map. Only problem with it, she left out all the red dwarf stars because she figured there'd be nothing of importance for an alien race to visit, which is probably not true. Uh, probably assumed that there wouldn't be planets around dwarfs, red dwarfs, and there are. And there might be some kind of uh, mineral or element that they need in those places. So, But she eliminated all those. Some of the star distances she used were have been recalculated and either moved them out of the range that she wanted them in or moved them in closer. So there's some real problems with the star map. But anyway, the point simply here is this briefing officer talked about the uh, Zeta-1, Zeta-2 reticuli as the being system where some of the aliens came from, the little gray aliens came from, and that it was about 40 light years away, which is true. Takes them nine months to get here based on their manipulation of space and time and what they called tunnels in this briefing, but of course we would now call wormholes. But what got to me on this is reading through this, and as I said, I thought it was an interesting read and treat it like science fiction as opposed to real stuff. But as I'm reading through this, there comes a point where they refer to, the, to Roswell. Don't really mention what's going on at Roswell, just use the term Roswell. Now you and I, in today's environment, understand if I say Roswell, you know I'm talking about the crash event from 1947. In 1981, the Roswell incident had just been published. Nobody was really talking about Roswell as Roswell, and if you were going to say it, you would probably say the Roswell UFO crash rather than just Roswell as a as a identifier for this event. This struck me as an anachronism. And to me, this was the thing that really told me that this was bogus. Not just the mention of MJ-12, but the fact that they, that some of the terminology and some of the thing they were talking about um, is really stuff that came about, that we learned about supposedly after 1981. They talk about the um, program of sending American astronauts or maybe Terran astronauts, Earth-based astronauts, to um, the planet uh, Zeta-1, Zeta-2 reticuli planets. That's where they, they send them a nine-month trip. They spend some time there. Um, that the alien, EB-1, which is the term that came out of the um, MJ-12 documents, I guess, EB-1 um, was able to learn English quickly and gave us a lot of clues about how their stuff worked. Anyway, this is what you, some of what you find when you look at the dark, dark um, state. As I say, I don't really think this is very accurate information. Some of the other things that I found in there are, are anachronisms and things that we know simply are not true. Uh, but if you want to read it in its entirety, I'll put a link up in the blog at Kevin, uh, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com so that you can take a look at that and decide for yourself whether you want to accept it or not. Um, I think you need to be a very skeptical eye to it. 
Otherwise, I think you're going to go off in a tangent that we you probably don't want to follow. And that's kind of the problem with a lot of the UFO field is we've got all these things going on now like this um, that cloud the issue. We should be able to get much deeper into the UFO phenomenon, but we can't keep getting sidetracked on this stuff. And there's people out there complaining to be uh, people who are involved in these projects and, and but offer no real proof of it and that sort of thing. So I think that's one thing that we need to keep in mind when we're looking at the um, uh, all of the UFO information. I try to bring a skeptical eye to it and, and provide information so you can look at both sides and kind of decide for yourself whether you want to believe this stuff or not. And uh, that's why I put the links in, in the blog posting. As I said, next week, I'm going to be jo joined by uh, Tom Whitmore. He is the, um, I think he's the uh, financial director, or he has he, uh, an important post in MUFON. Uh, I don't have my notes in front of me, so I'm lost on that. We'll be talking about uh, UFOs from MUFON's point of view, talking about UFOs, uh, MJ-12 and his take on that and that sort of thing, which might be an interesting program. I have, um, in Roswell in the 21st Century, there's a long appendix about my investigation of MJ-12. You can take a look at that and decide whether or not you want to accept that information and my conclusions. There's a lot of other stuff there. Also take a look at um, Encounter in the Desert, which is a look at the information around the Lonnie Zamora sighting. I think that's a very important sighting in ufology, and we need to we need to keep in mind that it's not just single witness. It's a much more important sighting and could give us some valuable information. As I say, I will return in about 167 hours with Tom Whitmore talking about UFOs. So uh, keep that in mind, and uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs>